Hello, and welcome back to Elder Sign, a weird fiction podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brandon Buddha. In this episode, we are back with Nathaniel Hawthorne's story, Rappuccini's Daughter, published in 1844 in the Democratic Review. This is the second of two episodes. This is going to be our discussion of the tale. And this story was nominated by one of our Patreon supporters, and uh, I really am glad that it was. I have loved this story. I'm really excited to get into this story. I think there are a lot of different readings here, and uh, I don't know, maybe I'll do some mad scientist cackling while we do. But before we do get into it, I want to let listeners know that uh, I was a guest on another podcast recently. It's the gaming, the the tabletop role-playing gaming podcast called Dice Geeks. Uh, really just talked about the, the network, talked about the shows that we do and some of the the best stories, uh, best Star Trek episodes that we've covered and that sort of thing. It was a lot of fun. And uh, Dice Geeks in general is a really awesome show. Interviews with Tolkien scholars, uh, writers as well. It's really kind of a gaming adjacent podcast about about other things that people can bring into their role-playing games and so on. It's a really great show. I recommend listening to all of it, but uh, certainly would love if you checked out the episode I was on at the very least. Yeah, it hasn't come out as we're recording this episode, but I cannot wait to listen to it. I'm really excited to hear uh, you pitch the network to some strangers uh, in a different in a different <laughs> podcasting universe. Uh, cannot wait to listen to that when it comes out. Yeah, it was a it was a ton of fun to do, and it, it should be out by now. Otherwise, we wouldn't have been mentioning it on this episode. And uh, yeah, that's the strange world of podcasting, right? Is that every every podcast has some kind of you know delay between recording and publishing, but what that delay is is what that lag is is different which i think is not the way it is in tv and that sort of thing right where those lags are all kind of predetermined they're all on the same type of uh same type of schedule not the way we do it here but uh yeah let's get into rappuccini's daughter brandon where where do you want to start trying to get into this big story there is just a lot to discuss with this one uh and you know talking about a lag in our real time it's just been a, a hell of a week so that's certainly yeah. informed where i want to start with uh, this uh, episode with this discussion. I want to start with context. I want to start with the ideas that were part of American transcendentalism with the with the promise of America kind of really prior to the Civil War characterizing a lot of the thought uh, of the int- uh, intellectual popular intellectual scene in the country, the speaking tours and things like that. And, you know, Hawthorne was a part of this. He was well aware that he was associated with the transcendental movement. He read a lot of criticism of his work. And as I pointed out in the recap episode, he got into some, uh, you know, nasty letter writing wars with Edgar Allan Poe, read into (laughs) newspapers about each other's work. Uh, But that's all to say that Hawthorne was really reflective of his place in American letters and he he discusses this in the introduction to the story hawthorne associates himself with the transcendentalists and he recognizes that his stories are full of pathos and fantastic imagery and they're suffused with capital n nature this is coming from this kind of use of that word nature really uh, also aligns him with the german romantic movement that american transcendentalism was a part of as well uh human nature the physical world it's all connected to the transcendentalism it's about practical being about 
what it means to be in a time and a, and a place and to do good, not just for yourself, but for others as well. And so transcendentalism, as we brought up in the recap episode, was really an important and resonant philosophical and literary movement that lasted from about the 1820s until the 1850s. So this is all pre-Civil War. And as we also said, the group was characterized as progressive for their time, uh, though now maybe maybe not so much, though maybe still a little bit in some areas. And, and that's because they recognized that America did not have to follow the same path as other countries with regards to recognizing the contribution that women and uh, uh, the slave class could have in benefiting society as free, fully functioning citizens. Margaret Fuller, for instance, who was a major voice in the American transcendental movement, was one of the first female rights activists. She called it woman. She was a womanist. Uh, some of the abolitionist movements started and were rooted in the philosophy of transcendentalism. And I'm not trying to paint a perfect picture of this group. I'm sure if you wanted to, we could go find something to cancel about them. But I think that the questions that they were asking at the time and some of the philosophy that they espoused was really meant to call out to the highest nature of our being, both as individuals and as citizens. It was a call to goodness and how our goodness could create flourishing for others, for American citizens. And this is not quite American exceptionalism, which also has really early roots in the founding of this country. But it's a way of asking the question. The question that they were asking was really, we're here, now what? We can do anything. We, we don't have to follow these other paths of history. So let's do the best possible thing. And you see that, I think, in the poetry of Walt Whitman, for instance, a call to the beauty and the dignity that exists in each person, specifically, you know, with Whitman, each American. The Ralph Waldo Emerson's essay on self-reliance is, I think, a really crucial document in American history. It's about the perhaps essential goodness found in each person and how if they are allowed to follow the call of their own genius are given the grounds in society to do so, to follow their own guiding spirit, ultimately, good will overcome ill in both society and in the human spirit, even if that good seems to contrast or come into conflict with the current flow of society. You know, remember that period prior to the Civil War where some of our public intellectuals were actually just caught up in the question of the nature of good and how to cultivate that in everyone. That's part of this moment. And so the role of the individual in society, often a subject of romanticism, is also a major part of American transcendentalism. And this question of genius is also a part of it. And and that's what we're going to be doing today. We're going to be looking at this story primarily through the lens of American transcendentalism and perhaps as a, as a critique of it, uh, which focused really on the power of the individual spirit and how it can be corrupted by external influences, by ideas, by um, strong emotions. And I think maybe that the best place to start is to look at this story first as a critique of transcendentalism, which I think it is, and as a, as a critique of the, of the coterie of people that Hawthorne perhaps maybe struggled against being lumped in with in, in this moment in time. So yeah, yeah, that's where, that's where I want to start. 
Let me let me tease out a few more things from you, Brandon, about transcendentalism before we get going. And you know, I've been thinking about this period in American history as as well. Getting ready to to uh, teach a, a class in the spring semester, though it looks like I'm gonna gonna lose that job before I actually get to get to teach that class. But I've been thinking about this second generation of Americans, right? This generation of Americans who did not participate in the revolution, who were not born as British citizens, but were born as American citizens and who are thinking about what that means. What does America mean? What is the promise of America? What does it mean to be an American? What did we have a revolution for? Not, you know, trying to answer the question of, you know, why did Thomas Jefferson and George Washington and so on uh, engage in the revolution? But but what should we do now that we do have our own country on, you know, this, this new land, right? This sort of European civilization outside of Europe. What should we do with that, right? is a huge thing that's happening in all sorts of of walks of life in America. But one of the things that's also happening at this time in America is wondering, what even do we mean by America? This is the period where in Europe, around the Atlantic world, nationalism is also really gaining steam. And so this is also the first generation that is wondering if America is even a, a nation, right? Famously, Abraham Lincoln is the first president who uses that word, or uses it in the Gettysburg Address. And in some ways, the, the Civil War, which is, you know, 15 years, just 15 years in the future of this of this story is wrapped up actually in the question of, is America a single nation with a, a unifying culture, or is it this confederation of independent states with a, a government that is essentially a republic? Uh, also, I suppose wrapped up in here too has been the question of how democratic is the United States going to be? All of that is happening here in the 1840s with all of these towering intellectual figures. But my sense, Brandon, and this is where I want you to steer me right if I'm wrong. My sense has always been that transcendentalism is, uh, you know, we think of it as being American, but it's it's rooted in New England. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, certainly the the location where its hub was, was New England, the, you know, the Concord and Merrimack Rivers, uh, Emerson's property, you know, Emerson's school on his property, Thoreau, who kind of like hung around like a deadbeat, uh, kind of fixing the windows and stuff when they broke. <laughs> um, I love Thoreau, but I mean, man, he's just an easy target sometimes for for criticism. Um, I, I, you know, I think civil disobedience is just another one of these crucial texts in American in American history. Uh, also. Walden. But, you know, he, he had a lot of reflection about nature. Part of what the Transcendentals were thinking about um, that is reflected in this place and being a, a New England movement, though the, the, these speaking tours and lectures were a huge part of the intellectual scene and cu culture as well. So the message did get out, uh, was the grounds in which experience could be had uh, by which I mean like, yes, they could study and focus their thoughts and ideas on nature and man's relationship to nature in part because of where they were living. And so that's kind of the romantic aspect of transcendentalism. But when they expanded that notion outwards, 
they were really interested in the grounds of flourishing, the conditions under which people could flourish in, in any condition, and to shoot for that as a society. And so that's why Margaret Fuller worked in, in cities a lot with, with women, uh, went into women's prisons to educate them, um, to talk about freedom and well-being. So this this was really not just a nature-focused movement, though most of the writing is really, you know, like about nature and stuff and naturalism. Uh, it's about the grounds of flourishing and well-being and the call to excellence that they really believed was maybe lived in the American soul, such as it existed. Right. Okay. That's awesome. Uh, just to get a little more context here before we, you know, like apply this, you know, before, you know, we apply this to the story before we apply this to Rappuccini's daughters. So, so yeah, how do you want to, how do you want to start thinking about transcendentalism or the critique of transcendentalism in this story? Yeah. I mean, I really do think that this story does function in some ways as a, as a critique of transcendentalism. And that's where I think we should start, how we can maybe catalog from this story the major areas where Hawthorne perhaps sees how people can be poisoned or corrupted, how their genius can be uh, taken advantage of or taken away from them. You know, so I want to look at first, Glenn, how you think the metaphor of poison works in this story in light of what you think Hawthorne is critiquing. And another way to ask this question is, what types of genius do you see revealed in this story? And do you think Hawthorne is taking the line, the transcendental claim that genius is an inherent good? Well, I think definitely Hawthorne is taking that idea to task, right? This idea of the the spirited great person or, you know, spirited great man, right? All of that, you know, capital letters, proper noun there, who, you know, is going to be the salvation of us all. And, and if we could all become that type of person, this society of, of, of great individuals, then everything would be would be awesome. He's showing that that's, that's not inherently not necessarily true that there's you know that if you're if you're promoting an ideology a philosophy that is about the aggrandizement of self you're going to get selfish people people who are doing things for them themselves and not necessarily thinking about others and that's definitely i think what we get here with rappuccini right where the description of him that we get you know as this mad scientist is that yes he's a medical doctor which you know by its nature, right? What that job means is, is healing sick people. And if you can't heal them, caring for them through their illness. But the characterization of Rappuccini is that he's not actually interested in that component of the job at all. He's not interested in the people who are sick. He's interested in the sicknesses that they have or the, you know, the things that are wrong with them. And he wants to study them. And the people are are, are almost kind of in the way of that, right? And that they're, they're things that he can experiment on and so on. And so what we're seeing here, right, is, is this, this, you know, great person, this, this, this willful intellectual person, this willful individual, the towering intellect, simply not seeing other people as actually people, not seeing himself in some kind of community, not thinking about any kind of constraints that might be on him. He thinks that he is free to do unto others as he pleases, and he does that, and 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 of course suffers for it in in the end, right? And possibly has been suffering for it for 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 quite a while. Yes, and and when we look at him in contrast to Doctor Baglioni, I, I have to wonder if 
Hawthorne here is taking up a critique of genius in general or of the corrupting influence of an ideology that you mentioned, something like scientism, something that ignores maybe the full picture of the humanity or a set of ideas that don't have a theory of a human being, but have only empirical objectives and aims that are only speaking to what can be touched uh, smelled, you know, discovered, dissected, uh, and examined in a, in a material sense. And so I wondered, you know, science is certainly something, or scientism is certainly something that Hawthorne is dealing with in this story. And so just to dig in on that then, Glenn, do you think it's the corrupting influence of an ideology that has hurt Rappuccini, or if it's his pure pursuit of genius? Or do you think Hawthorne didn't really uh, call out a distinction between those two things? Yeah. I mean, I think that's an important distinction probably for us. It's hard to say, I think for me, just reading this single story, what Hawthorne has in mind here. It would actually be easier, I think, to gauge that if this story were not taking place in Italy, if it were not taking place in the real world, right? That if it were taking place in a in a speculative world that Hawthorne had invented, then we could really see the way in which he's thinking about what societies and institutions, uh, you know, and culture are, are like. But here he's, you know, he has set it in the real world and is, seems to be taking that stuff at face value, but then also is not setting it even in the country that he, he maybe is, you know, the culture of which he is perhaps being critical of. So I think it's hard to gauge that for sure. But my sense is that because we don't really see a lot of of ideology at play in this story, right? There's not, you know, like we don't get like Rappuccini reading philosophy or like at some sort of political speech or something like that, that it really is just looking at this this sort of like willful individualism that that he himself is just is just living without necessarily maybe like the, the trappings of kind of like external cultural or external external uh intellectual support of that right i mean it does seem as though when we do read about any sort of institutional response to rappuccini it's that he's viewed as the aberrant one who's kind of taken this these ideas about what it means to be a healer and a medical doctor to an extreme and i think part of baglioni's concern is that Giovanni is living so close to this influence and might have more contact with it than with the uh i don't know the call that he has answered to become uh, a medical doctor and i think certainly Studying medicine is treated as a call in this story. Giovanni has left his family. He's gone somewhere, you know, in a kind of classic hero's journey way. He's he's set out on his own to answer this call to uh, maybe the call of his own genius to heal people. And he's corrupted, I think, by something entirely separate, though it's related to science or scientism, which is that of romantic love. And I wonder what you think... Hawthorne then is doing as this metaphor of poison just doesn't reach the realms of scientific discovery, but also is about the way that maybe romantic love or sex or something like that can corrupt the call of the the genius, the solitary genius. And whether you think that then that maybe that leaves a, a mixed message about whether one should really call answer the call of that solitude, of that work in solitude. Yeah, he doesn't also seem to be Giovanni. That is, doesn't he? Doesn't seem to like be going to class <laughs> or anything, right? So it's a cautionary tale about you know don't don't fall in love with your neighbor's daughter. 
especially if she never leaves the property, right? Just, yeah. just go to school, get good grades, you know, become a doctor. Everything will be, everything will be fine. Uh, yeah, this is, these are great questions because it is striking that the setup of the story is that we have to have this young man who leaves Naples, which is a you know massive city in Italy that's got a great medical school dating back to you know, uh, the, the earliest parts of the high Middle Ages uh, and has to go to Padua. You know, Padua is a great, uh, great town as well, uh, but, but has to go to Padua in order to get his degree. And so therefore, he's taken out of his community, taken away from his family and is alone and is living, you know, in this, this gothic, uh, this gothic apartment. And of course, there is a uh, you know, something to that about this being the, the middle part of the 19th century when mobility is a thing that is becoming to characterize uh, not just the aristocracy, but uh, characterize the professional class as well. Lawyers and, and doctors, uh, accountants and, and other types of people, uh, professional people who are now gaining access to, to more income and are becoming more mobile, both geographically and, and socially in the world. And so the, the ability to actually leave your hometown and go away to school is something that is, is generally new for, for people like Giovanni in the 19th century. This is something we did talk about uh, really in our, the very first story we ever, we ever did, The Murders in the Room Morgue, by Edgar Allan Poe, who I do think would win in an actual fight with Hawthorne, by the way. Uh, though, <laughs> though I also would watch a buddy cop movie about the two of them reconciling their differences. <laughs> but, but this is something we talked about when we did The Murders in the Rue Morgue, about you know, the way that the world is changing so rapidly, so dramatically in the 19th century. And people moving around is one of the things that is really changing and can be really horrifying. In that story, the horror was, right, that this sailor had brought something from Borneo to, to Paris. But here, the, the horror is really that Giovanni has left his hometown and doesn't have enough people around him to protect him from the evils that lurk in this new place. He doesn't know what the evils are. And even though there is a single family friend who does and warns him, it's not enough to, to protect him. So he's left, right? The community that's supposed to keep him safe is in a new place, doesn't know what the dangers are, and and so falls into them. And and makes this move because he is pursuing, I guess, his sense of his sense of self here. Right. And that self then I think is corrupted by the siren song of, of romantic love that maybe steers one away from the call to answer one's own genius. In Emerson's book, Self-Reliance or his speech or whatever, he talks about that when his when genius calls, he's a terrible he becomes a terrible husband and a terrible father <laughs> uh, because he he must respond uh, and and sacrifice those familial relationships and obligations. Which I think anybody who has any sort of creative or intellectual practice that's the horrible reality of it to dedicate yourself to the completion of a project that you care about there are time and relational sacrifices that have to be made. Hopefully you can organize your life in such a way that, you know, or you have the right type of partner that can leave you alone for <laughs> two hours a day or whatever you need to get the work done. But um, uh, yeah, Emerson puts it harshly. And I think, you know, there is a, a critique here of that attitude of romantic love and the cultivation and fruition of that being in conflict with one's own genius, or perhaps feeling as though the pursuit of romantic love is the call of one's genius. As we see in 
kind of the, the the characterization of the muses, right, as these beautiful women who who call us and get great work out of us. So I think that Hawthorne is sort of looking at that aspect of culture as well. And I think the, or or at least the, the nature of the poison or the corruption of one's own genius. I think the last avenue where he's really looking at this, that there, there are probably others that are in this story that maybe I missed. Uh, I really think that one thing that the flowers and poison represents in this story are the social norms that ignore the value and contribution of women's genius to society. We're told time and time again in this story how brilliant Beatrice is as one who understands this, you know, dark botany, as I said in the recap episode, <laughs> who, who herself is able to contribute greatly, yet she is literally trapped by the poisonous nature of her father's influence on her life, uh, even though there are some in the profession who are ready to recognize her contributions, and that that and all her father is thinking about for her is that she get married, not that she become a scientist in her own right. And I wonder whether or not you think Hawthorne was doing that intentionally, and maybe what he's trying to say with the poison working in this way in the story as well. Well, I think that's definitely true. I mean, the real tragic character here is not Giovanni, it's Beatrice. And and in fact, you know, we can, we can, you know, I know you said in the recap episode that we would, we would talk about the, the variant titles for this, uh, for this story, but they, you know, none of them, none of them are Giovanni, right? They're, they're all about, about Beatrice in some way, the both, both the titles that, that we've got. And Obviously, she really turns out to be the central character of the story. She's the one that we're supposed to pity and, and feel sorry for. And her story is that she's been victimized by her father, who's imprisoned her and turned her into poison, maybe turned her into poison and then imprisoned her, you know, so that she wouldn't hurt other people. Or, you know, maybe he doesn't even have to actively imprison her because she knows that if she goes out of the garden, that she'll hurt people. And she doesn't want to do that because she seems to actually have a moral compass, unlike her, unlike her <laughs> father. But then Giovanni is maybe not all that different from her father in the sense that, you know, although he's not making her poisonous by having her hang out with all these uh, these poisoned flowers, he is nonetheless poisoning her with this with this romance, right? Making her uh, want something that she didn't even know that she wanted, right? In some sense, he's kind of like, you know, marketing something to her. He's like an ad man or something like that, <laughs> right? Of like like promoting this thing that she didn't even necessarily know that, that she wanted before. And as we're reading the story from Giovanni's perspective, right, it, it looks to us like Beatrice is imprisoned in her father's house by her father and that he is terrible for not letting her out in the world and having a life. But maybe she actually is super happy there to just be doing the work that she's she's doing and getting the recognition that she's getting in the, the scientific journals of the day. But yet both Giovanni and her father only see her as a wife and a, a mother, right? That that's what Rappaccini wants for her is to get married and become a mom and, you know, thinking that like, that's what women do. So she has to do that. And that's all Giovanni really sees about her as well. And I think it's important that, that although, you know, Hawthorne 
does not, and I'm glad he he does this. He doesn't give us a lot of the details of their, you know, their afternoons in the gardens. Like we're not getting a lot of direct dialogue there. That's one of the worst ways to write romance that you know <laughs> fantasy writers love to do. Uh, just makes all of those relationships so cringy and just painful. We just get kind of told what's up. We get told how Giovanni feels. We get a little montage sequence. That's the way to do it. But Giovanni's love for her. Is, has nothing to do with her intellect at all. It's all about her beauty, and that also he's kind of into the fact that she can kill things with her breath. Yeah, that's right. And I'm really glad you brought up this differential in titles, right? One is Rappuccini's Daughter. Why does that work for an American audience when Hawthorne is teasing us and playing a little metagame saying that, oh, in Europe, they could the story could just be called uh, Beatrice, you know, the poisoner or whatever, whatever the exact uh, title was there that in, in that other title. And, and maybe the next question we'll want to look at is why this is set in Italy instead of in, in America. It really gives the woman a- agency. And really makes her the central figure where the title chosen for the American audience is removing her agency. And in fact, the the best lines of this story are given at the end when Beatrice is dying and tells Giovanni that his romantic love for her was a poison. And it actually poisoned him as much as it poisoned her. That the fact that it could turn to hatred means that he was already carrying a certain type of toxic poison within him. And I really love the way that Hawthorne just examines not only romantic love, not only that romantic love can be a siren song, a type of poison to the answering the one, one's call to one's own genius, but that it is not without its ill effects on both the man and the woman. Romantic love is just not is not just about the male pursuit of the woman. It also has an impact on the woman as well. It's not just a subject-object relationship. Yeah, and of course, in the end, it's Giovanni is the one who is actually the poisoner in this story, right? The other, the other subtitle in the, uh, the French was, it was Beatrice or the beautiful poisoner, or, you know, beautiful poisoness. We're given the, the feminine form of it there in French, but it's really Giovanni. Who's the poisoner in this story. He's the one who actively poisons somebody such that they die. Exactly. And it's Beatrice, right? So, so yeah. So I think it's really great that Hawthorne is, is, you know, he's calling attention to all of that here, just, just in the, in the titles, right? That, that Beatrice is the victim here, the victim of Rappuccini and the victim of Giovanni, who is the real poisoner. It's fantastic. And, and before I have a few more questions kind of associated with American transcendentalism, uh, before we move on to a kind of a more technical part of the story that I really love and find fascinating. Um, but I just wondered if you had any thoughts about why this story that is so much uh, in part a critique, but also in conversation with American transcendentalism, why Hawthorne has set this in Italy? Is it the sort of old world system that he's looking at? I mean, what is he looking at? Is he trying to, I don't know. I mean, I'm really baffled by this question. Of course, he can do whatever he wants as a a writer and (laughs) we are choosing American transcendentalism as the lens within within which we are critiquing or, or examining this story. But I mean, to me, it's a real question. What struck me as being the strangest about this story is not that it's set in Italy, but that the characters, uh, you know, the protagonist, Giovanni, is Italian and not an American. You know, the 19th century, especially the early and mid-19th century, was still a period when the centers of arts and sciences were in Europe. And so 
if Americans wanted to become professionals in arts and sciences, they they often had to go or would be well served by going to someplace in Europe to learn that art or science. And and I mean, like literally with art, like painting and, and sculpting, like you had to go to Europe for that. There were no real art schools in America in the the early and mid, and even into the the, the you know second or I'm sorry, the third quarter of the 19th century. That was the case. This is why you know Robert W. Chambers, for example, himself a, a painter, goes to Paris to study art, and and you know, so many of the stories in The King in Yellow are about Americans doing exactly that. Uh, Henry James is actually doing stories like this as well. So many nineteenth-century American stories are about you know young man going to Europe to get professional training. So what really struck me actually was that uh, Hawthorne doesn't have his protagonist be an American who has left; that he ha- has him be an Italian who has simply left one part of Italy and moved to another. But I do wonder, right, if you're th- thinking about it. From from the standpoint of critiquing the dominant philosophical and intellectual movement in America at the time, or at least certainly in Hawthorne's own native region of America, why set the story somewhere else? And I'm not sure I've got a great answer thinking about it in those terms, but I wonder if you do. I certainly don't. And maybe it's something <laughs> we can uh, we can just ask our listeners to, to chime in on if they maybe know more about this story. I read some criticism of it, uh, of this story uh, in the Norton Critical Edition that uh, we got for the show. And the story just seems weird to a lot of critiquers of Hawthorne, a lot of contempor- our contemporary literary critics, but also of, of his time. I mean, he's playing a kind of game that is obvious. What exactly it is, is, uh, is kind of a question mark. But he he calls us to think about his relationship with transcendentalism in his editor's introduction to the story. And, uh, you know, it's just maybe something to, to mull over and maybe, you know, we'll have an answer by the time this airs and we can really talk with people <laughs> on, on the forum about it. Right. We, we've got listeners who know a lot more about things than we do. So we will uh, we'll get an answer and hopefully have some good conversations about it, though. It does occur to me now that, you know, going back to something, you know, joke really that you made about how this is really set up to be kind of a Shakespearean rom-com. You know, so much of those Shakespeare plays as well, the, the you know, the romantic comedies of them take place in Italy. And so it might actually be that that is really the move that Hawthorne was making is that he was wanting readers to think that you know, for the first act of this story anyway, to think really that they are reading a romantic comedy and then pull that out, pull the rug out from them, and then also drop an anvil on them at the end in ways that, as we said in the recap episode, didn't really shock us because we're used to this sort of thing, but that probably were rather shocking to his contemporary audience. So that might really be, it might really be more of a craft answer than a, uh, than a, than a, you know, theme or motif type of answer. It certainly could be. And I, I think that's a, a totally fair reading of it as well. I mean, I really love how much this story feels like like a Shakespearean play uh, as we've as we've talked about. So I have one last question that's that's about Hawthorne's engagement and critique and and conversation with uh, American transcendentalism. And it's this. We've brought up many times. Uh, how the kind of one of the core tenets of transcendentalism was the belief that the response, to the call of genius will bring about more good than ill, even if it is a temporary ill, like the ignoring of one's family or something like that, or you have a crazy idea that somehow the respond to this call will be more good, that the engagement with 
the enlightenment of oneself, of what one is capable of. I don't know, the fruit that one can bear and the uh, flourishing that one can enact upon oneself and others will be good. This is an innate good that we should follow. But this story really relies in part on the concept of original sin as one of its key motifs, as one of its key illusions. And I don't know then how Hawthorne is really bringing that into alignment with the transcendental belief of the innate goodness of people and the call and the response to the call of their genius. And I, I wonder if you had any thoughts about the kind of conflict that Rappuccini's genius is inherently corrupt. The garden is the corrupt Eden because our labor is cursed as a result of our expulsion from the original Eden. Uh, what is going on there in your mind with Hawthorne kind of screwing up transcendentalism with the <laughs> um, illusion, the relying on the belief of original sin here. Something that occurs to me as well, I'm not, I'm not going to give you a straight answer to that question, no, which is, you, you know, that's what to. we do yes. here on this show. But, <laughs> uh, but something that occurs to me while you're asking that question is the extent to which Beatrice is a type of Eve in, in the garden, right? And, and thinking then, I guess, about Giovanni filling the role of Adam in this way, in that you know, she does give him something that, that turns out to, you know, to, to alter him in some way, to make him this purveyor of, of death, or at least he, he's in the process of transforming into that. And so, you know, maybe in an allegorical sense, right, that's Eve sharing the apple with Adam that, you know, is at the center of original sin. But in this version of it, right, there's been no agency by Beatrice, right? The idea in 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 Genesis, as this story is told, is that that Eve, although she's manipulated by the serpent in the garden, right, she does make a choice. But Beatrice has had no agency here. This is something that was done to her when she was an infant, and and also then didn't realize was happening to Giovanni as it was happening. She, you know, because it wasn't something again that she was actively doing. And so this is kind of an inversion of one reading of Eve that's been pretty popular in in uh, understandings of this story in Genesis of, of, of Eve as the person who, in some sense, introduced evil into the world, that that's being flipped on its head here, that we're seeing Beatrice as the, the victim, you know, doubly so, both of Rappuccini and Giovanni. Uh, that's, an, that's an image, right? That's a, a way of, of looking at this, uh, this allegorically there that, that hadn't occurred to me until now. Right. And, and it also really, I think, comes to fruition at the end where she is giving her monologue about her being one of God's creatures, even though she's been corrupted through no choice of her own, which I think you're really right to bring that out. The agency of her corruption is not hers. Giovanni is wrong about that. This has been done to her. And she knows her soul is good and beautiful and virtuous, even if her body is corrupted. And I think that that's a, a, another kind of fascinating take on this story. God's creation is good, even if original sin has taken place, that not everything is cursed as a result. Our souls are still good. And maybe that's a way that Hawthorne is trying to bring Christianity or Orthodox Christianity into conversation with uh, the transcendental thought about the innate goodness of the call of one's own spirit. 
Yeah, and you know, another thing about Eve and, and, and about this story in Genesis that I have never thought about before now is that maybe Eve is kind of the archetypal mad scientist, right? The, the whole the whole thing that the serpent does to lure her into biting this, this fruit from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil is to tempt her with knowing stuff. Don't you want to know stuff? Right. No matter the cost, no matter what that does to you, no matter what that does to your husband and, you know, to all of creation. Don't you want to know just to know, which is that's that's the siren call that mad scientists are answering as well. I yeah, Hawthorne's done a lot with this story that I just has never occurred to me. <laughs> he really. Uh, but, but, yeah, it's awesome. <laughs> yeah, I, I really love this story the more I think about it. And I, I, the next thing I want to move to is kind of this this technical trick that he does in the story that really impressed me for some reason. And I'm not quite sure why. Maybe it's because I, I've been watching, uh, like, saw Inception a couple months ago. And I'm, <laughs> I'm thinking about the way stories function within stories. I don't know quite why this jumped out to me the way it did. But one of the, the really the next thing I want to talk about that's probably gonna gonna lead us to the end of our discussion. Maybe we'll talk about I don't know our experience reading the story, but we'll see how this goes here. Uh, the thing I want to talk about here is the way that myth and fable are presented to us as readers of this story, Rappuccini's Daughter, and also within the context of the story. So the myth of Vertumnus and, and Pomona is given by the narrator to the reader. So it's a direct from narrator to reader, you know, though the statue of what could be Vertumnus is literally in the garden. And maybe if Giovanni were more of a symbolically minded person, he'd be wary of the garden as a result, more wary. <laughs> uh, but I mean, this reference is for us. And so uh, Hawthorne is asking us to look out for the ways in which he is drawing parallels in this story to the myth uh, found in Ovid's metamorphosis of Vertumnus and, and Polona. And then later on in this story, we get a fable about the poisoned girl sent to kill Alexander the Great. And this is told to Giovanni from Baglioni. So this is a story that is meant to reveal meaning to a, a, a person within the story. It's something for the character of the story. And I just wondered, one, if this struck you in any way, but how you see also these two levels of illusion working within the story. Hawthorne has one level of illusion where we, the reader, can see correlations to illusions all over the story. And we've really brought this out of the recap episode, I think. But the fable then is for Giovanni. It's to give Giovanni exposition about the world he's living in. And I don't, I don't know why this really jumped out to me, as I said, from a technique standpoint. But I wonder if this uh, interests you at all, Glenn, <laughs> and uh, whether or not you, you thought this use of storytelling um, in dif these differing degrees, uh, how it has a bearing on the story or whether or not, not you thought it was just kind of a cool technical trick. Well, it certainly is a great technique, right? I mean, when you're going to put literary allusions into your story, especially you know as heavy as heavy-handed as uh, as Hawthorne does here, you know they need to they need to work. They need to to be not just there to be clever, but to actually call our attention to something. And it can be to trick us into thinking the story is about something that it's it's not, which I, I think is one of the things that is happening here. But, you know, to lure us into seeing this as a fable, and I suppose it is a fable in the sense that there's, you know, a clear moral to this, this story, and so many fables are allegorical. And I think you've done a great job of teasing out the way in which this is an allegory about uh, values, uh, ideas of transcendentalism, for sure. But by bringing up 
Ovid so so early uh, in the story, you know, telling us that we should be thinking about uh, about classical mythology, but in particular, a kind of. Well, I don't really want to say that Ovid's metamorphosis is cute. That's the word that I did almost use. But it is a kind of tongue-in-cheek, uh, it's often whimsical way of presenting those uh, presenting those stories that, again, is setting us up to be thinking that we're we're here with a love story, right? For Tumnus, I think you, you called him the god of seasons in the recap, which is true. But he is also, you know, specifically like the god of gardens, right? So like everybody would have a statue of Vertumnus in their garden in these days, uh, you know, you know, wealthy people anyway in their their gardens. And he's he's often depicted in art as actually being like made of plants. And so, you know, hey, turns out. <laughs> That's kind of what the story is about in this, but in a way that we can't possibly guess when we're first reading the story. But then when, right, when we get to this story about Alexander, so we're still talking about, you know, the classical world, classical culture for our illusions here. You know, Baglioni is is almost kind of ripping us out, actually, of of the world of, of fable and is trying to actually, I think, bring us into the world of history of saying, no, 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 this is not like a fairy tale love story here. You're you're not pretending to be an old woman so that you can get into this garden and, you know, woo Beatrice. Uh, what's happening here is actually something very real, something tangible, something earthly, not something, uh, not something from the realm of, of like these, you know, these fairy tales or, or fables. Right. Uh, and, and that's not something I think that you, you know, you're going to notice necessarily on your first read of the story, but when we go back and read it again, as of course we do always with these stories, read them multiple times here, you know, you can see the way that these are being used. These illusions are being used to kind of signal to us that there's a change in the genre of story that, that we're finding ourselves in. Yeah, I, I agree. I think that's a really great way of looking at it. I what I think part of what struck me was th- th- just Hawthorne's naked technique, basically saying illusions work this way in storytelling and fables work this way. And illusions work in a way where you have to thread that particular narrative through your story with other references. You have to reinforce them in some way, because it's for the audience. Illusion is for the audience. But these simple stories can be for the people in the stories. And they can also sort of reify the meaning of your illusion or the type of story you're working with. Um, and also has the the function, as you pointed out, of alerting the character to actually what kind of story they're living in. The character of Giovanni is living in the wrong kind of story. But we also may have been as readers as well, where we see that old woman bringing Giovanni into the garden as this kind of heavily elusive reference to the story of uh, Vertumnus and Pomona as well. And I just thought, I just really appreciated Hawthorne's technique here in Maybe as as somebody who's still an aspiring writer and, and uh, trying to tell stories, and I just really like to look at the craft work of a writer like this and their theories of maybe how different levels of storytelling work in uh, in a narrative. Well, this is certainly an expertly written story. I really, really, really loved this piece. Uh, a piece that we would not we would not have looked at if this hadn't been nominated. So I'm, I'm so glad that we've got that system. I'm so glad we've got such great listeners and that we've got a way for listeners to tell us what we should read. Because yeah, we would not have looked at this one. And my life has been enriched for for having read this story for sure. And in fact, I'm I'm really looking forward to reading more Hawthorne now that I, I realize he's written some of these weird fiction stories that we can we can go back to this and uh, and get more out of it because uh, this was just really so awesome for me. Yeah, and I, this to me, I, I, first of all, I love this story and it makes me want to go back and read maybe 
not the house on seven gable of seven gable seven gables or whatever it's called uh but maybe go back and reread the scarlet letter and, and especially in light of like you know the fact that i would majored in both english and philosophy and american transcendentalism is, is the philosophy that i really find fascinating a uh, time period in american history that i find fascinating putting hawthorne in that context maybe for the first time uh was such a wonderful experience for me this week as well and uh made me hopeful kind of reoriented my mind a little bit as we as we lived through uh, what is you know the week of of, of January sixth in, in preparation for this episode? It's going to come out much later, but in any event, uh, that's where we're going to leave it with Rappuccini's daughter. So that's going to do it for this episode. I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. And as always, you can find us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. If you'd like to support the network, please, please join us on Patreon at patreon.com slash claytemplemedia. Head on over to the Clay Temple forums or uh, join us on our subreddit and let us know what you thought of Rappuccini's daughter. If you have any thoughts about uh, why a story that is so explicitly caught up in the conversation taking place around transcendentalism is set in Italy, in Europe. I'd love to hear more about that. If you have more thoughts about the way poison is used as a metaphor in this story or just want to talk to us about our work here, please let us know. Join us on the forums. We'd love to talk more about it. Yeah, we're sure we were wrong about something. (laughs) uh, We we would love to find out what. Well, next time we're going to be back with uh, a Clark Ashton Smith story, our first Clark Ashton Smith story in quite a long time. And this is the the story, A Night in Malneant. I'm very excited about that one. It's, uh, It's a moody, atmospheric piece, if ever there was one. But until then, we greet you and say farewell.